continue this morning our summer series in the Psalms. We are in Psalm 106. Psalm 106 can be found on page 606, 607, and 608 of your pew Bible. As you're turning, I want to cover your prayers uh, this weekend. We have our annual Presbytery Retreat. And so the church pastors and uh, ruling elders from the nine churches in our presbytery will be getting together. Uh, we go to Lead Lodge in Nebraska City. And so it's a time of fellowship. We have a speaker coming, uh, a, a guy that Les actually knows, uh, who's the president of the seminary that Les is attending. And he's going to be talking to us about uh, sort of the changing face of theological education which is something in our presbytery that we're really pretty interested in. Uh, the closest Reformed seminary to us is in St. Louis. And so as we've struggled with sending people away, you can send them to St. Louis or Jackson, Mississippi or Orlando, Florida or Philadelphia. Those are kind of the options. And so as we've been thinking about wanting to keep guys around and guys who are in a situation such that a leaving and going to seminary. When I when I went to seminary, I had one carload of stuff. When I left, I had a wife and a truck full of stuff. Uh, and so if you have a wife and kids and you're thinking about uprooting everything and moving somewhere, that is a terrifying thought. And for a lot of guys, really not very practical. And so as a presbytery, we are think trying to think, uh, outside the box in terms of what it's going to look like to train and to educate uh, men to be able to serve in ordained gospel ministry. Psalm 106, beginning in verse 1, let's read together. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth, opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. 
They made a calf in Horeb and exchanged a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord with anger, to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nation, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress. When he heard their cry, for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now we pause, we take these few moments, and we pray that your spirit would indeed accompany the preaching of your word. That, Father, those this morning who need a sense of encouragement, that, Lord, uh, your spirit would give it to them. Father, likewise, for the ways in which we minimize and we spin our sin, for the ways in which we make it out as though it's not as serious as it is. Father, we pray that your word and your spirit would convict us. And we pray that we would see this morning the glory and the goodness of your plan of redemption through your son, Jesus. For we ask this now in his name. Amen. How do you talk about sin? Do you even talk about it? Or let me ask it another way. If someone were to ask you to define sin, 
how would you do it? Would you give the answer from the shorter catechism or perhaps something like it? The catechism reminds us that sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. My guess is that while we may know that's the answer we ought to give or something like that, those of you who grew up Lutheran probably have a very good Lutheran catechism answer, but we're always tempted to downplay sin. And so we'll sound more like the culture than we would the confession. We're always tempted to explain it away with phrases like, well, you know, I, 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 just, I wasn't in a good place at that point in my life. Mistakes were made. Or, you know, I'm, I'm just being myself. I'm being true to my own heart. Our text for this morning highlights for us the wisdom of the Westminster Confession. And it teaches us something fundamental. Not just about sin, but about God himself. Sin is a violation of our relationship with God. Let me say that again. Sin is a violation of our relationship with God. It isn't just that we broke some rules. Rather, we have violated the relationship that we have with the God who created us, with the God who sustains us. And if you're here this morning, it's a violation of the relationship with the God who saved and redeemed you. That violation is never God's doing. Remember, if it's a relationship, sometimes in relationships, it can be one person, it could be the other person, oftentimes it's both. But this violation is never God's doing. It's always on us. And so in Psalm 106, the psalmist wants the people of, under God, of God to understand their history of disobedience while at the same time recognizing the faithfulness of their God. Their history is unfaithfulness. God's history is filled with covenant faithfulness, or steadfast love. Now on page five in your bulletin, you'll see an outline for our time together this morning. You'll also see in one sentence, hopefully what the sermon is about, under the heading of the big idea. And so this morning, our big idea is this. We praise the faithful one, even when we are heedless of his word. We praise the faithful one, even when we are heedless of his word. So, First, we see that we're to praise the Lord. Now, as we think about Psalm 106, we want to think about the structure of this particular poem. Hebrew poetry, as we've seen, doesn't rhyme like English poetry. It's not like the bit of the poem that we recited last week. Listen, my children, and you will hear the midnight ride of Paul Revere. There's not meter and rhyme to it. Hebrew poetry is very different. And this particular Hebrew poem is organized around what we call a chiasm. Now think about it. If you took a letter X and took half of it and you had sort of a, a kind of sideways V, that is a chiasm. And so at the beginning, at the end, you're going to have things that are similar. And then as you move in, you're going to have another set of things that are similar. And then there'll be in the middle section a kind of crescendo. And the crescendo reminds you of what it's all about. 
Well, look, if you would, with me, the crescendo this morning comes in verses 24 to 27. And in 24 to 27, we're told that the people of God have forgotten the word of God. They have no faith in his promise. They don't obey his voice. And so because of that, there are consequences for their forgetfulness. There are consequences for their disobedience. Well, if that's in the middle of the chiasm, what the psalmist starts with is a command. It's the command to praise the Lord. Now, there was a time, thinking about the book of Psalms as a whole, there was a time in which scholars thought that the Psalms was just kind of a dog's breakfast of collected poems, right? They just had all these great songs, and they just kind of threw them together, and there wasn't really any rhyme or reason to them, because you might have a psalm that starts with praise the Lord, and then you might have a psalm with, Lord, please remove the teeth from the mouth of the wicked right next to it. And you go, how do these things even fit together? There's, there's no rhyme or reason to it. But we've since learned that the rhyme or reason to the Psalms comes in the organization of what we see in the books. Now, if you'll turn uh, to Psalm 107, so turn over just a page, you should have a heading in your Bible that says Book 5. So we're going to move next week into the next book of the Psalms. And one of the things that we've learned in Book 4, which starts in Psalm 90 and goes through Psalm 106, is that this is a group of Psalms that were written to a group of people who are living in exile. So everything they thought they had in their covenant relationship with God has been removed. They have a land. Not anymore. They have priests, not anymore. They have a king, a Davidic king, not anymore. They have a temple. The temple's gone too. So what is it that God's people have that makes them uniquely God's people? Well, in Psalm 90, which is a psalm of Moses, we see the beginning to the answer. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Yes, they don't have the stuff they used to have, but they still have God. He's still their dwelling place. He is still their anchor. The hope of the people of God is always in God himself. It's in God's works, his word, his character. All of these are trustworthy and unchanging and true. And so book four begins, or it's going to end, and this particular psalm begins and ends with a command to praise the Lord. Why? How? Well, because amidst all of the change and all of the chaos and all of the idolatry and all of the longing for something they don't have anymore, the Lord is still their God. He's the same God who brought them out of Egypt. He's the same God who delivered them in the time of the judges. He's the same God who has watched over his people from day one. God is their anchor in the storm. Their circumstances can change. Their situation in life can change. 
who they, where they live can change. Everything that's going on around them can be completely going downhill. Their entire lives can be dumpster fires. But God is still the same. There's a wonderful story. I heard it uh, several years ago. Actually, I heard it on a cassette tape. Uh, most of you are old enough to remember what those things are. It was done by a, a Chinese Bible society. It was a group of folks who were committed to, uh, to having the Bible printed in all the different dialects that are Chinese, so Mandarin, Cantonese. There's like 50 or 60 others, and that was their work. They were going to have the Bible translated. And part of a uh, thing they were, they were doing is they were raising prayer support and financial support was they had a testimony from a Chinese pastor who had been imprisoned. Uh, he'd been imprisoned several times and was actually ended his life in, in prison. And during, uh, I think it was either his sixth or seventh imprisonment and the one that would be his final imprisonment, uh, some folks actually did an interview with him. And they were asking him about his time in prison. And he talked about how uh, the guards really targeted him because he was a Christian. They targeted him because uh, the communists, more than anything else, want you to believe that the most basic foundational truth to the entire world is that there is no God. There's only the Communist Party. And he was not buying what they were selling. He knew right away the emperor had no clothes on. And so spent all of his time in prison proclaiming there is a God. Uh, he's three in one, one in three, proclaiming the gospel to people. And they didn't like it. So uh, they kept trying to find ways to put him into isolation. And one of the things is this camp grew and grew and grew. And the infrastructure in the camp couldn't keep up with it was uh, they, they had hand-built septic tanks. And you couldn't get in like we would and drive a, a truck up. You know, you've seen uh, the famed honey wagon pull up to rural houses and, and empty the septic tank. Well, they had this pastor was their honey wagon. He was the guy who had to get in and shovel out and clean out the septic tanks. And clearly nobody wanted to be around him. And the guards stayed back a ways away. And what was really interesting is uh, he shared in this interview how that was the most wonderful time he had while he was in prison. Now, I don't know about you. I don't, I don't like shoveling any kind of byproduct. I really don't want to shovel my own or someone else's. And so I'm wondering, how in the world could that be the most wonderful time that he has? Here's what he said. When I did that job, they would leave me alone so I could sing to my God. When I was here, they left me alone so I could sing to my God. His circumstances were probably worse than anything any of us could imagine. He had lost his home. He had lost his job. He was, according to the Communist Party, a non-person. And yet, in the midst of scooping out human excrement in a septic tank, he understood 
This is the place that they will leave me alone so I can sing to my God. Secondly, let's know why we're praising the Lord. The psalmist doesn't give us this command and just be like, hey, just shut up and go do it. No, he actually gives us reasons. And the the way he does it is really very ingenious and it's beautiful because he's setting two things in opposition to one another. The psalmist is going to tell us about God's faithfulness, but he's going to do it over and against the backdrop of the faithlessness of God's people. So you have these two things going on that are true at the same time. God is faithful. They are faithless. Now, it'd be one thing to say, hey, praise God because he's faithful to you when you actually get your act together. Praise God because he gives you good stuff when you're doing right and when you're living right and when you're not playing the fool. But that's not what's going on. God is faithful even when his people are faithless. And it's interesting then, the psalmist does something that less read for us in our New Testament reading. It's interesting in Romans chapter 2, uh, Paul ends Romans chapter 1 with that, uh, that very striking list of ways in which people are rebelling against God. And he gives us that kind of downward spiral of ways that, that sinfulness and godlessness are showing up not just within our lives, but within the culture. And then he begins Romans chapter 2 by saying, but now listen, this isn't just those people over there. So if you're one of those people who are looking at this and you're passing judgment on someone else, you've kind of missed the point. Well, look at what the psalmist says in verse 6. Both we and our fathers have sinned. So this isn't just the psalmist looking back going, you know what? Our ancestors were just a bunch of ignorant fools. If they just had the internet, they would know how ridiculous some of these things it is that they were doing. Right? If they just had the weight of history like we did, if they could just step back and see how foolish what it is that they were doing, clearly they would have done something entirely different. That's not what he says. No, he says both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. This isn't just about somebody else's sin. The psalmist understands, no, it's about his sin as well. This isn't about how foolish his ancestors were. It's about the fact that human beings are sinful. In fact, you could argue it's what we do best. And that's important. It's important to recognize that because if sin is just something that other people do, then you will never know the joy the psalmist experiences. You can never, you can never have what he has because you refuse to acknowledge the depths of your need. It isn't just that God is a savior for other people. It isn't just that God is faithful to those faithless people over there. No, God is faithful to you. 
and we are as faithless as they were. Did you catch that turn of phrase in verse 8? Look at verse 8. <laughs> he talks about our fathers when they were in Egypt. They didn't consider your wonderful works. They didn't remember. They rebelled. Verse 8, yet he saved them. Yet he saved them. And not only did he save them, he redeemed them from the power of the enemy. He repeats this again in verse 43. He says many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. And nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. Why are we praising the Lord? We're praising the Lord. Because he is faithful, not when we are good, not when we have our act together, not when we're living right and avoiding foolishness. No, God is good. He is faithful, even and particularly when we are faithless. His love is not conditional. How much has God forgiven you? When I was a, a boy, and I remember even getting into college, there was a time at uh, the Christian college I attended where sharing testimonies was uh, kind of the rage. And, and I, I was kind of bummed because I didn't, I didn't have one of those testimonies where, like, you know, I hadn't been to jail. Um, I hadn't been doing, you know, I was never part of like a motorcycle gang. I remember uh, growing up reading uh, The Cross and the Switchblade and, and Nicky Cruz, and he was part of this gang, and he'd killed people, and was awesome. And then Jesus saved him, and it's like, like, like I just grew up in a farm town in Nebraska, man. I mean, I like, and I grew up in church, and the Lord saved me between my junior year and senior year in high school. But I don't like, I don't have anything cool to say about it, friends. That overlooks what the Bible says about all of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have hearts that are hard and need to be made flesh through the work of God's Spirit. We're all dead in our sin and in our trespasses. Not just the people who have really cool pre-salvation testimonies. No, everybody, even pastor's kids, that's their story. How much has God forgiven us? We were once dead in our sin, but we've now been made alive with God through his spirit. Well, thirdly then, we need to get to the heart of the matter. What is it exactly that's going on? What is it that the psalmist is recounting for them? What is it about their history that he wants them to know and to understand? Now, we've seen the middle of this, the kind of climax of this particular poem in terms of the chiasm, is the fact that they have rejected God's word. But he's going to lead up to it. That's not all that they have done. Rejecting God's word has shown up then in their lives in a bunch of different ways. First, it shows up in verses 13 to 18, and then in verses 34 to 38. 
that they are discontented with what God has given them. In 13 to 18, he talks about how it is that God delivers them from the Egyptians. And now they're out in the wilderness, and I love how he puts it. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. Now remember, at this point, God is providing them every morning through this thing, through this stuff called manna. Manna literally means, what is it? And they would wake up as they were out in the wilderness every morning, there'd be stuff on the ground, and they could gather it up, and you could eat it, or you could grind it up and make cakes out of it. And it was entirely, it was sustaining to God's people. But what happened? What happened is, they look at the manna, and they're like, oh, seriously? The same thing today. Huh. Don't you remember when we lived in Egypt don't you remember how wonderful we had? We had fruit and vegetables, man. We had, it was it was fantastic. And you're going, oh, no, it wasn't. What are you doing? And they're like, oh, that we could have some meat to eat. God says, you want meat? Okay. Causes a wind. Here come the quail. The people grab them. And they just start gorging themselves. And you know what happens. I mean, you don't have to be a registered dietitian to understand if you've not eaten any meat. And then you gorge yourself on meat. It's a very polite way. And the Bible speaks. He sent a wasting disease among them. Well, that's their history. God is providing for them each and every morning. And they don't like it. It happens again in verses 34 to 38. As they're going into the promised land, the Lord says, hey, listen, this is what you need to do. You need to get rid of all the people who are there. You're the vehicles of my, of my judgment. I need you to get rid of them. Because if you don't get rid of them, they're going to lead you astray. 34 to 38, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. And so the land becomes polluted not merely by the people that are there that were supposed to be driven out, but it's now polluted by God's people. God's given them a land and said, hey, this is what you need to do. Eh, no. Sorry. We want to we we worship their gods. We're not going to worship you. Or we'll worship you, but we'll worship you with their gods as well. Friends, we need to understand that discontentment is not merely something that happens here in the 21st century. Discontentment is not because we have never-ending access to social media and to the internet, that we have that appliance in our pocket that makes us always seeing what other people are up to or doing, or at least what they want us to see, what they're up to and what they're doing. No, discontentment, again, is fundamentally part of what it means to be a human being. God has given to us graciously and abundantly. And we are always discontent with what it is that he has given us. There's a wonderful book written by a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs. And the title alone tells you everything you need to know. The title of the book is The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. 
They rejected God's word. They were discontent with what he had given them. Secondly, we, that shows itself up in idolatry. In verses 19 to 23 and 28 to 33, the psalmist reminds them of the ways in which they turned their back on God and instead sought the gods of the nations. Now, let's understand that for many of us, uh, John Calvin has, has reminded us, and it's a wonderful quote, the human heart is an idol factory. And it's true. And so for a great many of us, the things that are idols aren't necessarily, uh, we're not walking around uh, worshiping Buddha. Uh, we're not, uh, we wouldn't say that, no, we're, we're really into Allah or, or we haven't bought what the Mormons are, are, are selling. But that doesn't mean that we're not idolaters. No, unfortunately, idolatry is when we take anything that's not God and elevate it or love it to the place that only God should be loved or elevated. We're so sinful and we're so good at being idolaters that we can take even God's good gifts and make them what they're not supposed to be. We can make them ultimate. Nebraska football is one of God's good gifts, or at least we're hoping it will be with a new coach. But we cannot make it ultimate. Your family is one of God's good gifts, but don't make it ultimate. Your children are God's good gifts. Don't make it ultimate. Your health your ability to support yourself. The list goes on and on and on. We are horribly skilled at taking God's good gifts and putting them in God's place. All of this we see in verses 24 to, 7, 24 to 27 flows out of the fact, this discontentment and this, this idolatry flow out of the fact that they've rejected God's word. God has very specific things to say about discontentment. He has very specific things to say about idolatry. And yet God's people aren't listening to him. Now let's understand that in verses 13 to 38, this is not a sort of comprehensive exposition of sin, but it's a pretty devastating one. And I found myself in the past weeks uh, uh, having to uh, bow the knee, not not grudgingly, but sort of in an embarrassed sense, like, really, oh, we got to do this again, I guess. Uh, having to bow the knee and just be like, yeah, God, that's me. That's me. We have two uh, great kids. I'm biased, I know. Uh, by God's grace, they love the Lord and uh, they haven't been in jail, and they haven't joined any gangs, so I think we're doing okay. Uh, and yet, my here's my here's my discontentment with God's good gifts. God, they live too far away. Okay. And there are so many ways, friends, in which that 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 just it's it's it's. That horrible little worm of discontentment just gets in and it spoils. It ruins the good things that God has given us. 
and the ways in which we take God's good gifts and we elevate them. We make them to be something they're never meant to be. See, again, this isn't just about what Israel did. This isn't just about what the psalmist did, friends. This is about what you and I do each and every day. That's the heart of the matter. We disregard God's word, and we're guilty of idolatry and discontent. Fourthly, then, and here's our hope. Our hope is in the same place that the psalmist's hope was. We can cry out to the one who saves. We can cry out to the God who saves. In verses 3 to 5, he says, Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. And you're going, wonderful. Where are those people? Huh. Verse 4, Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. And then again, in verse 47, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. This is not about the psalmist saying, Hey, God, I've gotten my act together. God, I've cleaned myself up. God, I I promise this time, I really mean it, I'm going to stop doing all the stupid stuff I do. No, I love the cry of the psalmist. Help me when you save them. Or in verse 47, save us, gather us. Friends, the hope for the psalmist is located in the same place that our hope is found. It's not in your own ability to get it right. It's not in your own ability to stop playing the fool. It's not in your own ability to turn your back on foolishness and sinfulness and discontentment and idolatry. It's not like you're just going to try really hard to pay attention now to God's word. No, our hope is that we have a God who saves. And we have a God who promises that he will gather his people to himself. This morning, as we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of those great truths. God saves us. How? Well, the table recounts for us how God saves his people. His son came and his body was broken and his blood was shed. Not for his sin, but for ours, for yours, for mine. Not for those people over there, for us. It's our sin that needed to be atoned for. Not just my neighbor's sin, mine. And God will gather his people There is that coming glorious day when Christ returns and he calls his people to himself. And we look forward to that. We know that God gathering his people doesn't just mean that there's going to be a certain uh, piece of land that are going to be occupied by a particular ethnic group. It's 
There's parts of that. But it means most notably that all of God's people are going to be gathered in the new heavens and the new earth, and we will be like him because we're going to see him as he is, and we will have fellowship with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the way in which you deal with our sin. You don't wait for us or rely upon us to get our act together. But Father, you are the God who saves. We are faithless. And you are faithful. And we praise and bless you this morning for your faithfulness as we see it most clearly and most plainly through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.